Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode of the podcast, we look back at one of our cross-border webinars, Thriving in a New Era of Globalization, a conversation with BCG's Arindam Bhattacharya. How are organizations adapting to the disruptive forces transforming globalization, such as economic nationalism, technological transformation, environmental crises, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. For nearly two decades at BCG, Dr. Arindam Bhattacharya has worked closely with some of the world's leading global companies, helping leaders to navigate the complex and rapidly changing environment. In this conversation, he talks with GBSN CEO Dan Leclerc about that experience and his new book, Beyond Great. He offers insights into the future of business education as well as business. As the book outlines, the world has been transformed by three powerful disruptive forces, social tension, economic nationalism, and technological revolution. Here's Dan to start the conversation. I get a chance to talk with a lot of smart, experienced people. This is no exception uh, at all. In fact, I've been looking forward to this conversation with Arindam. Uh, Bhattacharya. I'm not sure I say that right, but I'm going to, uh, that'll be the last time I say it, I hope, Arindam, um, throughout the, the conversation. But uh, uh, he comes to us from BCG. That's all I'm going to say right now, because I'm going to start the conversation and start by exploring a little bit, uh, um, Arindam, your career. Um, you um, I, if I recall correctly, you graduated from an IIT in India, uh, very fine, selective institutions, and then went on to earn an, uh, in an MBA from IIM Ahmedabad, uh, again, a very fine, selective uh, institution. And you have a PhD from Warwick in, in uh, manufacturing engineering. And then you started your career um, I think there was some uh, initial work, but started your consulting career at uh, A.T. Kearney, if I remember right. That's right. That's right. And then for the last 20 years, you've been at uh, BCG. And it's been a storied career at BCG, the way I understand. Uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is that you, were, you co-founded something called the Henderson Institute. And I want, I'd, I'd love for us to start there because I think at least amongst the people that we work closely with, the Henderson Institute is not only very important, but also um, very similar in some ways to what business schools do. Tell us about the Henderson Institute and why, why you founded it. So it's not that uh, kind of, uh, you know, thinking or innovation was not happening in BCG you know, around uh, new concepts, new ideas, but they were all scattered and fragmented within uh, the different practices. And more and more, what you're finding is practices were focusing much more on the short term and the immediate opportunities around pushing ideas. And uh, given all the different things that were happening around the world, and particularly what I call the converging of, uh, you know, technology converging of some of the societal issues, uh, converging of, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of geopolitics, there were a, a significant set of 
themes uh, which impacted competitive advantage of companies. And they were more medium to longer term. And uh, the Henderson Institute was really, in some sense, set up to do two things. One, centralize and bring together, uh, and now BCG had reached a certain scale, bring together a, a platform where uh, you could uh, create some scale and some uh, what I call institutional uh, memory and capacity to be able to push thinking around this uh, rather than getting fragmented all, all around the all around the firm. And second is uh, really uh, create a platform where uh, you know the firm as a firm you, we could push on ideas which may not have immediate commercial kind of benefits which the practice areas were more interested in but also position BCG in thought leadership space but also create new opportunities for uh, BCGs uh, in the medium to longer term. So that's really the genesis. Right, and right. Uh, I think since then uh, we have come a pretty pretty long way. I mean, VHI is doing, uh, I really do think that is doing, doing a great job. Yeah, well, I certainly pay attention to the thought leadership coming out of the Henderson Institute. Now you're an alumni fellow of the Hen Henderson Institute as well as a co-founder, but let's get back to your 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 core job, I guess is the way you might uh, describe. You um, had uh, led the India office, uh, but you also, the way I understand it, helped uh, uh, co-found the Global Advantage work that at BCG. Tell us about the Global Advantage work. So uh, it was, I think, uh, 2003 and four, uh, based in India and uh, with some of my colleagues in the US and in China, we started kind of seeing two phenomena. One is that, um, you know, there were a lot of these companies uh, coming out of the emerging markets, which were taking leadership position in either product category or even in an industry. And, uh, you know, that was a very interesting phenomenon. And secondly, a lot of our clients started asking us and engaging with us around topics like global sourcing, uh, how to set up uh, R&D. In fact, I remember, I mean, one of the first projects I did was around setting up a huge sourcing office for one of the automotive giants in China. I then worked on setting up uh, uh, the first uh, international R&D center for this European automation company in India. You know, uh, there was another industrial giant of the US which said that, look, uh, we need to start thinking about uh, creating a backroom uh, center in India or partnering with someone where we can significantly reduce our uh, kind of back office costs. So these were questions and there was something else uh, that means going on. And that was really the genesis we started discussing. And at that time it was all about uh, how uh, the new models or waves of uh, globalization of sourcing, manufacturing, services, IT are all coming together. And uh, we started talking about it. We started writing about it and that became then the basis for the global advantage practice. How do you create advantage through a global operations for a company? Uh, that's a, that's an, a great, place to uh, begin our discussion about uh, this book, Beyond Great, which you're a co-author of. And um, I think a lot of our discussion will revolve around the ideas, the strategies discussed in that book. But I want to go back to your, fir your first book, <laughs> because it seems like um, 
your first book called Globality was in, both inspired by and, and helped inform your work on this global advantage. In fact, I, I remember when the book came out, I didn't know you at the time, Arindam, but I remember the book came out with a very a bold sort of subtitle, right? It was Globality. And if I, I wanna make sure I get this, I get this right. It was uh, competing with everyone from everywhere for everything. And it, it struck me at that time that we're in for a really um, big set of changes when it uh, comes to globalization. But if I remember the core correctly, and, and, and I hope you can give us some insight into this, the idea was that uh, in the developing world, there was a lot of um, up and coming business. And the yes. thought was that the, the context of globalization will change as a consequence. Tell us just a, 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 maybe one anecdote about that book that you think is particularly interesting and we'll, we'll build from there. So uh, it, it was just striking uh, in some sense. I still remember, uh, you know, I was presenting in India to a visiting head of international for one of the US, uh, large US chemical companies. And uh, he, he made a comment, uh, you know, um, he made two comments. Uh, one was Wall Street had been asking them what's the emerging market strategy. I mean, it, the whole emerging market was a hot kind of a strategic arena for all Western companies. And uh, second was he said that there are more and more of my peers I see who get completely blindsided by uh, the kind of suddenly uh, the challenges coming out of these countries who are hitting us in our home markets. Uh, chemicals may not be so much, but in industrial companies, uh, it was uh, becoming quite, uh, you know, uh, apparent that uh, many of the Western companies, and we've seen this industry after industry, many of the Western companies had just not uh, and anticipated the rise of these, what we call the challenges and how with the advantage of low cost. And also, I mean, many of them had learned about technology, about business uh, processes from the interaction with uh, the more developed companies from the more developed countries. I mean, they had improved by leaps and bounds and they had become aspirational going out of the market. So there was a, uh, to us, this was a very interesting, fertile ground to talk about the stories of these companies, how they think, how they are completely kind of, uh, you know, rewiring themselves to be able to compete, not in the home markets, but in the global markets. So that's what led to the tagline that, uh, you know, uh, they are competing with you for everything. They are competing with you for talent. They are competing with you for market. Uh, so you better be ready. Uh, and the audience <laughs> was largely uh, the Western Western readers uh, that uh, and Western uh, leadership of companies that uh, it's no more um, you know a Western company dominated market. It is becoming a much more global playground. Right, and you know that, that's it's it's very interesting. And I can imagine you and your co-authors sitting. Um, at the, as this book was published and begins to get traction and people begin to understand it, but then again, realizing that globalization is changing, right? <laughs> in yes, fact, exactly. I think in the, I can imagine in the decades since that book was published, 
really getting um, through your work with uh, not only large industrial com companies, but you know, companies in this new space of globalization, these insights coming along. But this eventually led to uh, Beyond Great, right? I, I wanna connect the dots though. What, what was happening since then? I think in the book, you mentioned three powerful forces that are sort of shaping the way um, global companies are thinking and globalization in general. Tell us about those three forces and then we'll sort of dig into the strategies that you've seen companies use. So if you look at the history of globalization, I mean, two forces in some sense have shaped it. Uh, one force has been the force of multilateralism, the growth and how they set the rules of the game. And other force has been fundamentally technology and technology development, which has progressively kind of uh, removed the barriers to cross-border flow of goods and services, but also reduced the cost of this uh, goods and services traveling distances. Uh, for goods, it was container and faster and faster ships. For uh, services, it was the growth of internet. And also the internet had uh, also allowed uh, what you'll call a long distance sharing and management of kind of manufacturing facilities and supply chains, because uh, for the first time you could do that at a cost that made it uh, competitive. So that had been the two forces. Uh, geopolitics was not really an important uh, element of that, uh, simply because uh, the whole uh, world uh, economic structure was uh, kind of, in some sense, underpinned by the US hegemon and the US leadership of, uh, of, of all these multilateral institutions. Now, we all know that uh, in this growth uh, where the global trade as a percentage of global GDP, the start of the 20th century was perhaps around 10% had grown to nearly 60% by end of uh, the 20th century uh, had also created a lot of fault lines. But as uh, when, when the growth was at that pace, some of the fault lines were covered because uh, there was a much bigger pie to share. The moment, economic crisis happened and the pie shrank, then everyone started grabbing for their share of the pie. And that actually exposed the fault lines that uh, the globalization had created enormous wealth, but uh, there was clearly a mismatch in the division of the wealth that happened, particularly in the Western economies. And that the created- inequality. The inequality. The, uh, that happened and then, uh, you know, the fault lines were visible and that led to this whole, uh, these, these three forces coming together. Uh, at the same time, you had the next wave of technological innovation through digital growth or digital technologies, you know, of IoT on, on the shop floor factories, but all kinds of digital technologies and growth of uh, data and data can travel much more easily than uh, uh, goods and services. So. I still remember that uh, in 2015, I was, I, was, I was attending the World Economic Forum Davos and I read an, one of the internal kind of newsletter. We said, globalization is dead. And to me from India, I said, there is something wrong. I mean, globalization is not dead. I mean, you know, we are still so very positive, but there's something else happening. And that started the research. And that led to this book, which is really in some sense, uh, uh, there are two uh, kind of centripetal and centrifugal forces at play. And this time the 
play the force of also societal force. Uh, you know, the tensions that is then societal uh, society is also becoming, uh, a, in some sense, a player in the forces that is shaping globalization besides geopolitics and multilateralism, which was weakening and, uh, you know, the force of technology, which was also shaping uh, uh, the cost of goods and services and data that would flow across borders. So that was the basis. And we said, look, uh, if this is the case, then the economic logic of uh, how do you compete and how do you build a global business is changing. And that's really what the book set out to do, understand the economic logic and what is the new playbook. The, the, those societal forces that you talk about, these are things like uh, clim the climate crisis and uh, um, growing inequality within countries, those types of social uh, kinds of issues, social economic, they're not just social, no, no, in addition to, yeah. If you, if you were to think about say 1980 or 90 and talk to a CEO or the leadership team or even boards, they always saw some of the societal divisions which has already always existed, not as part of their responsibility. I mean, they don't need to do anything. It's the government's responsibility to do it. They're paying taxes. But uh, more and more, it became very apparent that uh, unless we find a way uh, as, 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 as society and the, uh, and the kind of ecosystem businesses and government work together to address some of these issues, uh, and the, you know, these will act as roadblocks to the basic growth of uh, the global economy. Mm -hmm. And that is why uh, there is, and also I think some of the excesses of capitalism became started becoming very apparent. So that is why purpose and what is the role of business and the, you know, the business roundtable that just really started talking about what's the role of company in addressing some of the societal issues, which is around sustainability, which is around diversity, which is around uh, some of the communities that they work in and in, how do you help the communities and so on. So these were issues that had becoming, uh, that actually had led to anti-globalization movements becoming or economic national movements becoming more and more prominent. And of course that acted as dampness to economic growth. Well, any single one of those dimensions would be, is very complicated by itself. But when you pull all of that together, the, the societal, issues, the social tension, the uh, economic nationalism, the technological advances and transformations, all of that is very, very complex. And one, one of the things I've always admired about um, experienced uh, consultants like yourself is the ability to bring all that together in a, in a, in a model, in a, in a way that, um, both leverages their experience, but also helps to communicate about how companies are doing this. And I find this a strength of beyond great. In fact, um, my colleagues often give me a hard time because I, I work in groups of three, it seems. And and, I, and in your book, you, you bring your experience together with companies and what they're doing together in a, in a three by three in some sense. Yes. I wonder if you could, you know, give us a, just a quick overview of that framework, which I, I find very uh, useful, 
But I'd, I'd like to spend the rest of the time drilling down a little bit, in, in particular in, in, a, in three areas. But could you give us, is it possible without a PowerPoint slide to give us an overview of that model? Of, absolutely. Uh, that was one of the hard things to do because, uh, you know, uh, the book is not so much uh, the typical management consultants uh, write, which is much more of a hypothesis driven, uh, you know, approach. Uh, you, you have a set of ideas and then you do a lot of research uh, and then you prepare a framework and you have a lot of data behind uh, kind of justifying the framework that you're proposing as a new model or new strategy or uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, this book is remarkably different from that because in the sense that this is based on distilling uh, in some sense insights and essence from, uh, you know, I personally must have interviewed about uh, nearly uh, 50, 60 CEOs and CXOs and we built case studies about 200 odd companies who, who we believed are doing something very interesting. And out of that, we distilled these nine strategies. But in some sense, I would say these nine strategies are paradigm shifts of how uh, companies are uh, looking at uh, fundamentally changing the way they had been doing things earlier. Uh, and uh, so in, in I would like to just draw two things. And before I come to the nine strategies, uh, one is it is not that all the companies have to do all nine, but these are the nine paradigm shifts uh, or you can call it strategies that we distilled from, uh, from, from all the interviews and case studies. As it so happens, and it's a, it's, it's a kind of a happy coincidence that there are nine of them and uh, all the nine fitted very nicely in three buckets. One is to do with growth. Three is, uh, sorry, one, one set is to deal with growth, one set is to deal with uh, operations, and one set is to deal with the organization and culture. And uh, put together, what we call is creating the playbook for moving from being a great company to being a company that is today at the cutting edge in this new era being shaped by the three forces. Now, I'll not go through all nine because it will take a lot of time, but uh, I, I'll just go through maybe one or two of them, which is, I was particularly struck and I'm sure when you read it, you would have particularly struck with, um, with uh, the first chapter and, uh, you know, uh, do go, to, go, go, go beyond. And uh, one would wonder, you know, social kind of CSR kind of activities is always there, but, uh, is that really something that can drive growth? And the examples that we are given in companies, and uh, you know, from a mining company to uh, to a automation company to a financial services company, and then Natura, the Brazilian uh, cosmetics company, each one of them has put a different what I'll call a kind of aspect of total societal impact into core of the business to drive growth. Mining company, the, the senior executive we spoke to, she said, no, this is the license to operate. If you do not do that, if you don't work with our community and help them improve their economic standing, it's not just kind of doing, doing some training and building a school. 
it is actually working with them as a partner to improve the economic standing we will not have a license to operate in that community and that is what we are doing uh, that's anglo american they are an early stage of that model but and we'll have to see how it works out but it just shows the thinking change that is today helping them think about what is the business of about and that's what they think will unlock markets for them compared to some of the competitors who probably are not doing it as well or as uh, deeply so that was and to me this is a paradigm shift i mean you move from just talking about and doing uh, maximizing total shareholder returns to maximizing societal impact including shareholders uh, return to shareholder so each one of them actually uh, chapter uh, this is one the second one talks about what you know how do you have to redefine products and services to talk about solutions because that's where the growth is and every company that we have this is one dimension that most companies have progressed further but then they and, and one of the most interesting companies and which recently announced actually they have completely changed their organizational model is john deere and how they have put what they call a farming solutions at the core of the business rather than just selling tractors and harvesters right. and the day actually interesting the day they announced it their stock price after within weeks had increased by nearly 70% so really they are being rated now as a tech stock rather than just as a old line industrial stock mm -hmm. so uh, we we derived these three uh, kind of these nine strategies and um, in in the operation side one of the things that i would draw your uh, attention to was the last phase of globalization that we and as kind of deal with in my book globality is all about low cost as being the basis of advantage for a lot of companies and if you have the indian it companies uh, which we feature there which is tcs uh, the whole basis was having very large what they call industrialized it delivery centers but if you look at tcs today i mean while they still have a fairly large centers in india they have over 200 centers around the world these are completely networked they can shift work across these centers uh, seamlessly uh, using a cloud management services and uh, they combine different skills and cost structures to be able to deliver a solution so it's no more just plain vanilla you know low cost uh, industrialized service it is becoming more and more customized solutions delivered through a global network and that is the model we believe companies and industrial companies as well are moving towards uh, which is a completely different way to think about how do you build a global manufacturing advantage rather than just uh, deal with uh, low cost so that's one on the organizational side i was struck i mean i had gone to china uh, for a, for about nearly 10 days and had a chance to meet uh, dozens of companies just to understand how they are dealing with these three forces and one of the most interesting companies which has been uh, at least the last year uh, was in news for the wrong reason was bite dance the man uh, the, the kind of producer yeah, the, uh, the owner of tiktok yeah outstandingly a kind of outstanding company they have over 50000 employees uh maybe growing faster now that they had it uh, they had the 50000 employees uh, kind of two years ago when i met them uh they still operate as a startup they do not operate 
and the word they used was we want to keep a company liquefied they Wait work on liquefied yeah so uh, they they work in short term projects in what they call sprints every employee knows what the others are doing the kpis are transparent from the ceo down they each one of them works on multiple projects at the same time they choose what projects they work and it is all kind of uh, complex this kind of organizational model uh, seamlessly knit together by a digital you can call a nervous system so to me uh, you know the way the whole concept of how do you how do you make an organization not just bureaucratic but in some sense liquid fluid agile much more customer focused is a huge paradigm shift you are moving away from trying to gain efficiency to becoming much more speed and customer focused so as i kind of get three illustrations of a very different paradigm shifts and this is what we try to bring out in the book with the richness of the examples to support them yeah and it's interesting that that technology plays a role across all of those examples uh, that you described now you in the three categories you you talked about a couple of examples in the the growth category mm -hmm. and then you skip to the organizational category but right there in the middle you have some strategies that are evolving in in terms of operations you talk about yes. that uh, and uh, one of them uh, i think you referenced a little bit was ecosystems right so the way you just engineer an ecosystem right absolutely but the 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 another one is what you what you describe as let the data run through it this is how you titled the chapter and to me this is an interesting place you talked a little bit about um the growth in terms of doing good and i want to uh, come back to that a little bit especially as i get to the last one but i want to focus a little bit on this this data you know i had a conversation just uh, the other day from a, um, a person in a a large executive search firm they do a lot more than executive search um now but um the the conversation revolved around something like the the following that uh, uh you know when in, in automobiles we're not talking about cars anymore right we're talking about mobility and the way she described this experience from an executive point of view is that this convergence between between um a sort of manufacturing or or products and software right <laughs> and that everything now sort of revolves around um when we talk about um mobility around software and um delivering services so we had a nice chat about um playing games in um autonomous vehicles right so so you still got to get place to place but you don't have to drive anymore now we play games so how, the the question is how do you deliver gaming or entertainment in the context of mobility so all of these things are changing and and I know I'm I'm sort of uh, rambling on about things that you have sort of a nice sense of but talk to us a little bit about this idea about data i think in one one place you write about um instead of shipping it stream it and yes. another place you talk about the importance of data in terms of operations help us get some clarity about what's happening in this space of IoT and and um 
software convergence with uh, hardware, but things like that. I know that's a big question, right? You could go on about, but. but. You know, uh, again, as part of the research, I spend some time in Silicon Valley and talk to a bunch of people. And one of the most insightful comments, which was, uh, came out in an interview with this, with this person who is really one of the leading uh, big data experts in the world. He said, uh, data used to be an exhaust. Data used to be an exhaust of management processes. So you did something and then uh, to measure it, you, you, you kind of uh, data came up and then you, you created dashboards or whatever. I mean, data was an exhaust of some activity. Now, or value creating activity. Now you can create value from data. So data is becoming the fuel and all digital companies actually create uh, a solution which is customized to you using data. And they can influence your behavior so that you buy that solution. So in some sense, the data has become the fuel and that is a huge paradigm shifts. Now digital companies and a lot of these startups, they are what we call a digital natives. They, they, think in terms of how do you construct a new solution? How do you construct a new solution that addresses certain pain points using uh, data, digital connectivity, and so on and so forth? What are the industrial companies? Now, uh, industrial companies, uh, for industrial companies today, uh, these kind of digital solutions, which are layered onto their hardware, is the fastest growing business. So, uh, you know, Siemens has something called the digital factory business, which is really about these digital solutions, which is sold to their customers uh, after the product is sold. So th that is the fastest growing business. Uh, and there are all kinds of different solutions and they have created their own uh, kind of a platform in which they can analyze the, these kind of data which is coming up from their machines. And this platform is called MindSphere application uh, Mindsphere, and uh, they use that application, uh, that uh, platform to create the solutions. Now, the change that we have seen was earlier, the whole mindset was, okay, uh, data comes up, we measure it, and then we go back and change something in the process. Today, companies like Siemens or Schneider, we have put four or five companies, John Deere, Siemens, Schneider, and even a startup. Uh, you know, they look at this as a way to create uh, or target new revenue pools and to create competitive advantage. So that's the big shift, but then you need to figure out a way how your physical supply chain and your digital supply chain are designed and can complement each other. So they can't be too separate. Uh, they have to work together with each other because where's the data coming from? Now, again, Siemens uses a very interesting term called intelligent hardware. So you have to design the hardware to be intelligent to, to kind of uh, bring out the data, which can then be used to create, uh, you know, use, using algorithms to create the kind of uh, solution which could be on, around improving uh, the uptime of a machine to uh, predicting when the next failure will happen to uh, improving 
the, the kind of telling the operator that you need to change some parameters or operations of the machine to be able to give you a better productivity or a better quality and so on and so forth. These are all solutions, which, uh, but you need that data that come, can come in. It can also combine with all other kind of data. For example, if you take tractors, uh, the tractor uh, throws up a lot of data from uh, the sensors which are there in the tractors on, uh, say fuel consumption or uh, on the plows of uh, what is the quality of moisture in the soil and at what depth are you planting the seeds to uh, weather data which is more public to pricing data which is more public uh, to create into go into the algorithm which then the farmer uses to decide or decide on when to plant what time to plant what depth to plant to be able to maximize his uh, profit per uh, hectare of uh, farmland. So that's a very different way, but then you need to start putting the customer and start thinking like the customer would think and construct your whole value proposition customer back rather than product out. And so the John Deere as a tech company, right? <laughs> that's why John Deere has, a, has become more of a seeing yourself more as a being seen as a more as a tech company rather than just making plows and tractors and harvesters. Yeah, that's that's uh, perfect. That uh, example or series of examples really does help illustrate how um, technology and data and digitalization is changing the way we think about this. In fact, you know, going back to this conversation, the reason why we're ha having this conversation was because uh, from their point of view at this uh, executive uh, search firm, uh, firm, the the most difficult talent, they say, to find has been um, um, the, the sort of the combination of software knowledge, expertise, and experience combined with design, all sort of um, brought together with leadership skills right so so as an executive they're, they're they're saying that these people simply do not um, exist in large numbers the software engineers don't have the leadership skills the design folks don't have the software um, um, capacity and so we had a, a a conversation about this and and you know one of the things that we talked about just as an example is typically in, in mba education for example you might get an undergraduate engineering degree, right? Go do engineering for three years, but then you're assigned to be a team lead. And, and then eventually you get your MBA, right? And then you, you really don't do much engineering after that, right? Now it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit different, but what I heard, for example, about software engineering is that people were reluctant to stop doing software engineering because even three months out of the workforce means you lose your cutting edge capacity, right? So stopping to get an MBA is less um, uh, common as a consequence. So we had a, a nice chat about this, but this all leads me to my favorite chapter in the whole book, right? And the, 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 the title of the chapter is Thrive with Talent. Right, and you can see why you know uh, our community is really so uh, interested in your experiences as it relates to uh, not only the strategies but the talent part 
of uh, those strategies. And maybe you could uh, take us inside that chapter a little bit and talk with us a little bit about number one, the what you've observed in terms of the importance of talent and um, the challenges associated with that, but then some strategies that you see happening on the business side um, so that we can begin to think about, well, what can we do on the education side that might um, you know, help address some of those challenges? That's a, that's a, that's a extremely important question. And I'm, I'm going to be somewhat controversial here for your audience. You know, one of the interesting questions that I asked, uh, I'll not name whom, uh, a friend of mine who was at that time, um, you know, one of the leading uh, business school professors and leaders, uh, would you design the business school, uh, you know, uh, the way they're designed today? And if you have to design from scratch, and uh, uh, she said, uh, probably no. And I said, why? She said, look, uh, for us, uh, particularly in leading schools, we don't have an incentive to change radically, but the world has moved on. And the way uh, the businesses now uh, conceptualize and deliver value is very different from the way uh, they should deliver value. As an example, while you still need the skills of say, some of the skills of marketing or finance, I mean, really more and more, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you need if, and more and more of businesses or uh, value creation has been driven by startups which grow up. And, uh, you know, as if you want to be an entrepreneur, you need a set of skills, which are not just functional skills. You need a set of skills, which are much more integrative skills. And uh, that's uh, one of the challenges of both engineering and also business because increasingly value creation is happening not in the core but in the periphery and in the overlap of industries for example value creation is a combination of hard and soft skills value creation is happening in combination of design engineering and software skills uh, value creation is happening in, in, in looking at the solution from the customer's perspective, which is not just, uh, you know, a product, but it requires a lot of other kind of knowledge. So in, how, how do you create this set of integrative skills, uh, which are very critical for business? That is one dimension. The second dimension is in today's particular technology, fast-paced change, you teach a skill within say a year, that skill becomes redundant. And you cannot keep on training and teaching. So you have moved back completely from push-based training to a pull-based training. And someone needs to get into a project or needs to get into a role which requires certain kind of skills. They get into a program to build that skills they'll move into a different kind of a role. They'll get into a program to build the next set of skills. And these are all a combination of online and offline, but they are dynamic and they are real time. So it is not that once you've had a kind of training program, you are done. That whole model. And that was one of the examples we, we describe in the book, particularly in the way Indian IT companies, which hire tens of thousands of employees every year used to train their employees. 
today they have completely changed the model to become a push uh, from push based to a pull based model based on a certain uh, requirements for different uh, customer projects or solutions uh, if you don't have cloud but you're going to a cloud based projects you learn the cloud based technologies if you go into something else you learn that technology and that programming and that's how uh, is happening the mm -hmm. third question which is why uh, talent is becoming very important is the expectations of our young people are changing dramatically and we caught we, we speak about they are not interested in careers and long careers uh, you know and the roles they are more experienced interested in uh, kind of getting more interesting experience particularly uh, before they have say uh, you know families and they are wanting to experiment they want to have a better balance uh, work life balance so the question for companies is if you want to attract this talent if you want to attract this talent i mean how how do you create an environment which gives them a multiple experiences rather than just forces them into a you know a box and putting all of it together i'm really in some sense uh, you are talking about a very different talent paradigm and uh, my, my my view is uh, you know all educational institutions actually need to think about it and that is why the lots of corporates are starting to think about uh, corporate universities because that's the only way you can create this dynamic talent uh, kind of uh, upgradation that is required in today's environment yeah well we're certainly seeing a lot of change in, in that and this overall paradigm shift I, I like the way you describe it it's you know the days where you get as much education as possible early in life and then kind of reap the benefits throughout those days are gone right we we need to uh, learn over a lifetime and i and i know you addressed that in the chapter but there's one there's one um, part in the in the chapter that i found um, really interesting and i'm, I'm going to give you an example i i talked to a talent person at a large cloud services uh, company and, and it, it was really uh, like a lot of things I talk about it revolving around this talent question and education and development. And he said something um, that intrigued me. I, he, he didn't clarify, um, but he said something that was provocative to me. He said, look, uh, when we hire people, they, they bring their clients, right? He, he said something to that effect that, that we don't really hire people unless they have already clients. And, and, I asked a uh, fellow I know at a, a different company, um, in this case, it's more of a, a, a straight technology company about this. And he says, what he's talking about is talent um, acquisition or, or talent um, recruitment through acquisition is what he was talking about. So a lot of companies now are um, really buying other companies, uh, really less for the technology and for the um, the um, the innovation and more for the talent. And um, I recall in your chapter, you had these these three Bs, right? <laughs> this was one of the Bs. Uh, the other Bs being uh, building. Um, this one's called buying, borrowing, and bridging. Because this insight to me really gives us a, a lot of um, knowledge to work with on the education side. But how do we how do we bridge this gap between what uh, talent we have, 
and the talent needed by business at any given moment. You don't have to go through all the Bs, but I'm wondering if you could just um, tell me about the, uh, the building B and the borrowing B in addition to the buying. So uh, the building is the traditional way you would develop talent, you know, uh, which is hire and then train and upgrade the skills. And uh, that, that, that has been always been the traditional way uh, that you do. Uh, buying is exactly what you said. A uh, lot of companies, uh, particularly in the tech space, but otherwise also uh, look at uh, acquiring talent through the acquisitions. They are not just acquiring customers through acquisitions or capability, but also specific talent. And uh, but to my, to me, one of the most interesting models is borrowing. And uh, I still remember. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, as part of, again, uh, some of the interviews that I did, I was talking to uh, the CEO of one of the tech companies, uh, you know, and uh, he said, look, we had got a project from a client uh, and we realized we don't have that specific skills and uh, which was required, one specific skill that was required uh, for uh, building a certain program for the solution. And to hire someone and then train them, or even to uh, kind of get someone who's the right kind of skills would be very difficult because that was the very specialized programming skills, uh, which uh, they, which was not very common. So he said, as an experiment, what we did was we float, we developed a module, and we put it out into on the on the on the on the on our website and the net for people to kind of compete and give it, and we gave a prize for anyone who could uh, kind of compete, uh, uh, complete that module and uh, send us a solution. He said, we didn't expect any results or maybe some crackpots will see this and maybe do something. He said, we were absolutely overwhelmed. There were so many responses and we had a choice of which are the ones uh, we took and then we kind of created them. and. So it was not so much they were looking at the money, they wanted to solve that problem. And we got some really, really great programmers from uh, Russia, from uh, Estonia, from uh, some, some, from, uh, some Eastern European companies, uh, countries uh, who, there were some very, very strong uh, programmers who want to work freelance. And the question therefore is, can you borrow them for a specific, uh, way and how do you uh, how do you uh, kind of engage them and uh, I found that interesting because most companies always look at talent internally I mean they rarely look at uh, kind of this kind of talent who could come in on a project basis or even for a short term not just project and 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 uh, you know uh, solve some of the challenges that they face so that is boring I, I, I love that. In fact, it, it um, informs some of the work that we do at the Global Business School Network. We're, we're in the business of defining problems through which students compete, right? And the idea is that, you know, if you come up with a good problem, it's like, um, it's like honey to bees, right? The great talent is attracted by great problems to solve. And this is, this is important. You know, I'm going to just make a comment and then I want to turn to a question. There are a couple of questions that popped up in, in, in there. I, I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but 
yeah, I want to sort of tie things together a little bit, if if we could, Arinda. The, the 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 chapter on talent spends a good deal of time with purpose, where we started, right? We started with this uh, do good um, idea, and um, the the thought now is that if you want to attract talent, it's not just great problems, but a great purpose. And I, I, maybe you want to make a comment on that before we turn to uh, uh, one or two of the questions that have popped up. You want to sort of tie this together in some way? You know, uh, uh, to me, um, purpose and before that, uh, you know, uh, mission, vision, they were often words uh, until two things happened until uh, the big funds started putting some money where their mouth was. I mean, you had a lot of funds earlier, and, and I'm not talking at purpose, but talking about the things that you do for empowering or impacting society. So more and more funds and the money is being influenced by ESG. And that is one uh, one thing that has started changing the behavior of companies. But the other, and to me, the more important thing is the question that you raised, which is increasingly there are large parts of a population, particularly in more uh, developed economies, uh, where young population who make choices, who make choices are the kind of companies that they work with and choices are the companies that don't want to work with. And it aligns with, uh, you know, uh, what I'll call the purpose and uh, aligns with what they think is uh, the responsibility of, uh, of a business to the society. And therefore, um, if you, if, and, and it's not just hollow. I mean, uh, we were told, for example, in both interviews with MasterCard, with, uh, with uh, Natura, with uh, Unilever, that once they kind of integrated purpose into their talent hiring and management and into their way of working, their uh, attractiveness at campuses and attractiveness on job sites and attractiveness to young people has increased significantly and their retention has improved. So there is clear metric to show that young people care. Young people care and, uh, and they can also see through any superficial kind of stuff that you do. Uh, so they care and uh, the good companies are trying to convert that into some kind of advantage for themselves. Thank you for that, Arinda. I, I wanna to apologize to the audience because I, I haven't left enough time for all of the questions that have popped up. So maybe we can uh, go through these um, fairly quickly, but. Really interesting question I think you deal with in one of the chapters uh, pretty explicitly, and that's the optimal balance between global integration and national responsiveness. And I, I think you, you're, you're really um, pointed to, to this, and I think it's around chapter six. You want to make a comment on that, Dorinda? Global integration and national responsiveness. And I think it, a lot of it's driven by this idea that many countries have discovered they didn't have the supply chain built in a way that helps them in a time of a crisis, right? That's not the only thing, but you point to um, economic nationalism as being one of the factors companies need to consider in building 
um, resilient supply chains, for example? So there, there are many nuances to this question, but let me try and see if I can get through it in a couple of minutes. One is uh, what the Unilever uh, CEO told us in the interview. Uh, he said, one of the questions that not just Unilever, every consumer companies are facing today in every market is all the large markets is there is a very strong local competitors. These strong local competitors, they are very nimble. They, uh, they respond to consumer changes, uh, need changes very, very quickly. They, they, can, they, they go into the market they, with new products, but they also equally fast get out of the market if the product doesn't succeed. So they have, their whole model is centered around speed and responsiveness. Whereas a global company, its whole model is centered around global scale and efficiency, which is why they build this fairly monolithic kind of organizational model. And he says, that is something that we have to break. And it's not very easy when you have more than 100 years of culture behind uh, that kind of global headquarter driven model. And that is why companies like Greenlever are completely overturning their model to giving much more responsibility and authority to local teams to be able to respond very quickly. That is one dimension. The second dimension is economic nationalism is making uh, companies, uh, it becoming more expensive to import products. And often it is not just cost, it is also policy saying that if you do not invest in the country, then uh, the, uh, the, the government say we'll penalize you or not, we'll let you enter. So to build for particular large markets uh, uh, completely kind of in some sense integrated model within the country is becoming very critical, not for uh, both for regulatory requirements, but also for cost requirements. So both these uh, forces being local for local and creating local ownership of the customer in terms of decision rights are playing out. And that is how you manage the global uh, scale with local responsiveness and local supply chain. Thanks for addressing that. Unfortunately, we're actually out of time. How are you doing on time, Arendra? Because several questions have- So we can go on for another five minutes and then I just need to- So why don't I put off, one person asked for book recommendations. How about if we agree to follow up with some additional recommendations when we send out the video perhaps and maybe get your, your ideas about that. But I, I wanna to get to this question about inequalities. Big tech companies are accentuating more and more inequality. Will it be possible in the future to have more and more growth, but less inequalities? Um, you know, this maybe goes beyond what you were talking about when you talk about beyond great for companies, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts about that? You're in, you're in the middle of this in a lot of ways, because you're helping companies to grow and, and develop, but at the same time, uh, you're experiencing some of the pushback in terms of uh, social tension. What do you think about this? That's a complicated question, and a question which is uh, what I'll call, yes, it is right in the center of some of the raging debates that's happening that uh, the benefits of uh, growth has been divided unequally. In fact, uh, and, and 
in fact, the technology today, uh, it's not just uh, the digital technologies, but uh, other technologies and uh, with the value creation shifting more and more to IP rather than to kind of producing nuts and bolts, uh, you know, widgets in the shop floor. Uh, the owners of IP and the funders of IP are, uh, are in some sense uh, getting disproportionate uh, kind of returns compared to those who work on the shop floor. That's the reality. And that is reality reflected in the growing inequality and the concentration of wealth. Now, my mind, there are two very, very fundamental uh, challenges that we need to solve if we want to solve both the problems of growth and uh, growing inequality. Uh, one is there has to be a way that uh, policymakers in every country find a way of distributing or having a better redistributed policies. <coughs> and uh, there's a big pushback which is happening with digital companies. If you try to uh, tax them, they are pushing back. And uh, there is a digital uh, kind of a bipolar uh, with China and US cornering the benefits from the digital growth. That is one part. The second, I think, issue is um, technology is becoming the big, big driver for a new value creation and uh, in some sense surplus. And that is concentrated again in few hands or in fewer places. And how do you, how do you uh, make that, uh, those benefits more universal? Now, I don't have an answer to that. I do believe that uh, we have an opportunity, and to me, I mean, we either way we have a lose-lose of, uh, of opportunity, or we can create a win-win. But unfortunately, sometimes in this kind of situation, countries and companies look at it only from their uh, position, winning position, rather than in the way how you know they can create, and that uh, a more uh, winning world. And if I look back between say 19. 80 to period of around 2005. And that was one of the biggest uh, drivers of growth, which was multilateralism, which grew the pie uh, and which created enough surplus. Unfortunately, the surplus was uh, not well distributed and created uh, these divisions. I just hope that the opportunity that we have with the, uh, with, uh, the power of technology and digital uh, to create value, we don't, uh, in some sense, lose that power by again failing to support it to the right economic policy within the country. Well, thank you. And it was a really tough question, um, but it's a it's a great positive way because what I heard you say is that it it is possible to have more growth, faster growth, and be more inclusive and reducing uh, inequality at the same time. But it's hard and it involves public-private uh, collaboration as well as democratization of technology. But uh, you know, that win-win I think is what we're all aiming for. And unfortunately we're out of time. Boy, I, next time we'll have to schedule this conversation for a little bit longer. Arindam, it's been a pleasure, a, a privilege 
actually to have you um, with uh, the GBSN community talking about your insights from the field, but also how you synthesize those in this in this book, which I, I do highly recommend. Uh, to me, it uh, creates order out of chaos in many ways. With thanks to GBSN CEO Dan Leclerc and a special thank you to Dr. Arindam Bhattacharya for his time. To attend our cross-border webinars and catch up with more of the work we do here at the Global Business School Network, please visit gbsn.org. If you've enjoyed your listening experience, please remember to rate, click and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, take care.